I didn't say nothing. We shared the Esplanade, Tony. I don't want that apple cart upset. Yeah, then somebody should do something about it. I appreciate your thoughts. You saying what I think you're saying? I didn't say nothing. You are listening to Pada Bang, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. I'm Vic Singh, and I'm in the studio alone today. Between summer schedules and life stuff, I couldn't wrangle the crew together. But I try really hard to get an episode out every week, and so in that spirit, I'm taking a crack at flying solo. The format's going to be a little different. I'm going to try some new things, but we'll get through this together. I feel a little like Tony in the pilot sitting in Melfi's waiting room, waiting for her to open the door. No panic attack imminent yet. We'll see. Okay, today's episode is The Wait. It was written by Terrence Winter, directed by Jack Bender, and originally aired October 6th, 2002. A Wonderful Observation by Autopsy was the name. The Wait is also a song whose chorus lyric is Take a Load Off Fanny. HBO Synopsis. A disparaging remark about his wife sets Johnny Sack off on a vendetta. Meadow decides to do volunteer work at the South Bronx Law Center. Furio hosts a housewarming party for the gang. Silvio and Chris make an offer to an old-time hitman named Lou DiMaggio. And Tony and Carmela find themselves at odds over the family's bill consolidation strategy. I quite like that synopsis. The opening frame, uncharacteristic but beautiful. Usually it's a pullback of New York City, if New York City at all. This time it's a close-up of what looks like Little Italy in Manhattan. A thoughtful, vintage-feeling side pan. We're on Mulberry Street. The camera trains on Benito One. It's a real place, still there. 174 Mulberry Street, been around since 1968. The interior vibe felt a little like the opening sequence in the pilot of Mad Men. The interior is actually someplace else on the Upper West Side. So inside Johnny Sack and Joey Peeps are talking, This is the first time we meet the Joey Peeps character, played by actor Joe Maruzzo. We learn that Jenny used to do a little dancing. She taught ballet years ago. There are laughs in the background. We see Donnie Kay, played by Raymond Franza, who I had the chance to speak with briefly. That'll go up soon. He's a guy in Ralph Seferetto's crew. We've seen him before, but Johnny Sack points him out to Joey Peeps. Outside... There's a pretty gruesome altercation. Johnny Sack takes him out and pees on him because of the laugh, we later learn. But I always thought there was much more to it than that. There has to be. It could be his own suppressed rage at Ginny, a lack of leadership on this from Carmine. Obviously, that hasn't happened quite just yet, but maybe he's anticipating that. Sprinkle in a little brinksmanship, some power moves. It's got to be a lot more than just a laugh. The laugh was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. During the altercation, Donnie says, please. It was kind of a powerful moment to which Johnny Sack's response is, Scumbag, let me buy you a drink. Cut to Ginny stepping on a scale. The weight. Again, 
This clearly explains why he did what he did to Donnie Kay. She was watching Penny Serenade, we learn. Penny Serenade is a 1941 film about working through marital issues. Kind of on point here. Ginny asks questions about the coat, the blood. Johnny Sack delivers a classic line. Jesus, what is this, the Inquisition now? The Inquisition, of course, was a group of institutions formed by the Roman Catholic Church to combat heresy or denying the faith. Today, it's officially known as the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, whose mission is to evangelize and defend Catholic doctrine. Cut to Brian Camerata, cousin Brian, played by Matt Del Negro. Potabing's conversation with him is available now, so check that out if you haven't already. Carmela finally gets Tony to sit down with him. If I'm hearing you right, liquidity is the real concern? Cut to Tony noshing on a dessert, Wonderful juxtaposition. Uh, well, we do occasionally need ready access to our money. Kind of makes you wonder what Brian must be thinking at the moment. Them lambing it, him being implicated. It's an expansive line of writing, and it creates so many possibilities on where to take the story. We learn that cousin Brian has a wife. Her name is Janelle. Then Sil calls, interrupting the meeting. AJ answers. Tony tells AJ to hang it up. I gotta say... Pretty casual and risky. That kind of a phone call while the kid's potentially on the other line. It's flirting with disaster. So, Silvio tells T about Donny K. Donny K is threading the needle this episode. First scene, second scene, and now the third. Cut to Tony driving up to see Johnny. Notice the detail of having Johnny Sack's car in the driveway of the job site. Even though we never see him drive it or come or go in it, the fact that it's there that attention to detail. Also note the architectural contrast between the old and new. A mid-century modern roof juxtaposed with an old brick building. Ralph's in Miami, we hear. Kind of thrown at us. Again, stay with us. The writers keep asking us to stay with them. Keep up. Cute cocksucker could wind up dead. Great line, even better delivery. It turns out that this is the kind of thing that someone could wind up dead for more than other issues. It is pretty well-established no-man's land that families, kids, wives are off-limits. And it was interesting to hear from Terrence Winter on the commentary this notion that they had to work this out in the writer's room. Like, could lives end over a joke about another man's wife that largely was predicated on hearsay? Nice anecdote there. Tony asks Johnny, I thought Ralph was your friend. I thought he was his friend too. How quickly the tables turn though, right? Because of a joke he heard via hearsay from Pauly. Now, we've talked about this on the podcast before, and I always think about this. Did Pauly know or anticipate that he would stoke such a fire? Earlier on a past episode, Naya said it was Pauly's most elegant move. That it was the first and possibly only time he played chess, not checkers. I'm inclined to believe that, and we know the backstory of what's going on here, obviously, is that Paulie, the actor, Tony Sirico, had to have back surgery. So this script had to be, a lot of storylines had to be shape-shifted to adjust and account for that. Tony's response after Johnny Sack recited the joke back to him was classic. He wanted to laugh so bad. He was able to show us how much he wanted to laugh, but didn't laugh, and he sold it. 
He wanted to make another, albeit to a lesser degree, off-color remark, but he seemingly knew that wouldn't de-escalate the situation. Which is his goal here, by the way. But rather, it would only inflame and galvanize Johnny Sack to do something violent. Let's see if it was enough. Johnny Sack, we learn, has a soft spot. See what I did there? He never had a problem with Ginny's weight. Rubenesque, he calls it. Rubenesque, of course, is referring to the voluptuous females depicted in paintings by Peter Paul Rubens. He was heavily influenced by Caravaggio and even made copies of his work to hone his craft. Okay, back to Johnny Sack. He says all this, Rubenesque and the weight never bothered him. He says all this at least to Tony's face. But maybe he's looking for confirmatory body language from Tony or to get a better read on the situation. Like Tony's a proxy for what all the other guys think or how all the other guys might react. Just setting that on the table. Tony says you can't be serious about him winding up, you know. This almost feels like he's playing chess here whereby he would be okay with Ralph being dead if his hands were clean. Like, this could be a way to get rid of Ralph without lifting a finger. That whole idea of give a person enough rope and let them hang themselves, this would expedite that. Just a thought. Let me know if you see that too. Okay, cut to Furio picking up Tony. The awkward silences, they're getting longer and more awkward by the episode. We clearly know something is coming to a head with Furio and Carmela. Carm knows how he likes his coffee. He notices that she knows how he likes his coffee. Again, I love this dynamic of we know what's happening, but no one else in the world does yet. Cut to Meadow at college. Note the choice of cut to a child right after a scene where implied infidelity is brewing, is percolating. Meadow's interested in volunteering at the law center. I'm saying that because the HBO synopsis dedicated four words to it. The girl hosting the law center booth is Elliot's daughter, but we don't know that yet. We will in a moment. What's cool here is the chance encounter between Elliot's daughter and Tony's daughter. They're interfacing together. Small world, regularness of life type stuff. Cut to Silvio trying to figure out who told that joke to Johnny. There were 15 guys at the diner. Sports analytics department over here. He's eating McDonald's fries, which have held up over the years, by the way. Those are some pretty perfect tasting fries. What's the upside of telling Johnny, Chris asks. Sill says, to get in good with New York. Followed up by a great Chris Malaprop, Dysentery among the ranks. This comes from no dissension in the ranks. Tony's response is great. First of all, the place is swept once a week. Second of all, the feds want there's a lot more interesting shit being talked about in there. Besides, Jenny's that fat ass. The cut mid-speech to Silvio noshing on fries is terrific. Coupled with his affirmative nod. Little details Chris beelines, also another little detail, Chris beelines for a fry when Syl leaves the room for a moment. Tony asks Chris, great little sort of setup here. Tony asks Chris if he thinks it could be Syl. Now, we know it's not Syl, but the fact that T even has the thought 
kind of makes you wonder, why didn't he consider Polly? Why didn't he go down the food chain, work his way up to Silvio? Now, out of, out of sight, out of mind, I get it. But Silvio's the most level-headed guy he's got. It's an exact line that Tony has said. But the whole Patsy thing, stealing from the job site, Silvio having his back, the roots are there. Great moment between Tony and Christopher. Cut to Melfi in therapy. She's concerned about her son, Jason. This is something that lots of people go to therapy for. This is something that I'm talking to my therapist about. A little aside, though. A show within a show is taking place. And it's of other therapy sessions beyond just Tony's. And it's quite effective and interesting. We've seen Janice in therapy. We've seen Meadow in therapy. We've seen Carmela talking to, if not a therapist, a priest, or being in a confessional situation. We've got Melfi in therapy. For all this talk, especially in this universe, Sopranos universe, about how taboo therapy is, there's an awful lot of it going around. And as a viewer and as a listener, it's absolutely spellbinding. Could have gone south. It could have not worked, but it does. It works amazingly well. This potpourri of therapy from different people, different angles, different issues, but yet all seemingly existential. Here, Melfi's in therapy talking about her son who's thinking about dropping out. Classic angst. Sask has always been highly motivated, Melfi says. Sask, of course, is Saskia, Elliot's daughter. Elliot responds, Kinohora. That's Yiddish for don't give us bad luck, followed by a tug of the ear. Elliot comes through in a big way in the next sequence, where he connects dots between Jason and his father. Elliot's playing point guard. He sees the court. He knows what's on the line. He reads the shot clock. And it's powerful. Jason may be feeling guilty himself, Jen. He's powerless to avenge you and resents his father for the same shortcomings. Game, set, match. Cut to George Hamilton, i.e. Ralph, back from Miami on account of his back, allegedly. Quick aside, the actor George Hamilton appeared in Godfather 3, A lot of people in this episode appeared in Godfather movies. Little theme. I always wondered if he was hiding because he thought Janice would tell Tony what happened. More than just merely to recover. The former would be a true chess move, so I'm inclined to think he just wanted some R&R and never anticipated Jan might say a word. But the writers quickly give us satisfaction here. He's asked, you know you broke up with his sister? Ralph says not unless she told him. So, this confirms it's at least a suspicion. Okay, note the crucifix and the New Jersey Devil's bumper sticker in the same frame. Always with the juxtapositions. And then note moments later when Ralph is about to hand Tony a sack of oranges, he's positioned between the crucifix and the Devil's sticker. There have been other Christ-like references when Ralph is in a scene or in a frame. At this point, it's safe to say it's way more than mere coincidence. I found it a little odd that Tony came to Ralphie's turf, Ralph's social club, which used to be Richie Aprile's social club. And we see some of that ghost of Richie Aprile from all the boxing imagery that's on the wall or whatever's left of it. I feel like Tony's a people-come-to-me I don't come to them 
kind of guy, at least with respect to Ralph. So Tony comes in and asks how Donnie Kay is, and Ralph lies and says he was just asking Pontecorvo and Vito that same thing. Subtle pathology of the character on display. Tony asks, Any idea was writing a family gossip column? Ralph's got some balls. This is an important moment. It's a precursor for things to come. The way Ralph explains and rationalizes bad behavior, there's an inner fire he can't control. He makes quick decisions that end up being bad decisions, spends a disproportionate amount of time rationalizing those decisions to others, and then eventually boils over and gets angry, like he does here. Pay attention to this habit. It will return. FYI, devil dogs are cream-filled devil's food cakes manufactured by a company called Drake's. Got a sneaker deal and I ain't break a sweat. Catch me cause I'm gone. Tony declares, whatever he is, he's Carmine's underboss. That's the first time we've heard it stated, I think. The pecking order. So you're going to fucking placate him. When Tony says things like placate, it sounds like the net after a Steph Curry three. Tony makes him call Johnny Sack to figure this out. That's what this whole scene's about. But no apologies, he warns. What does fucking Ralph do? This phone call is a great sequence. T's listening in. We see the boxers I just mentioned a moment ago in two photographs on the wall. If anyone has a thought on who it might be, let me know. Gut reaction was Mike Tyson, but couldn't confirm or deny that. Tony gives Ralph a long leash to reel in the culprit. He stays quiet. It's a great moment, great acting. I also love the Johnny Sack wink when he sees Ginny weighing her food. This is a commentary on so many levels. Classic show, don't tell in writing. Terrence Winter said this sequence was an homage to the Honeymooners. Intentional. Nothing's coincidental. More proof right there. I loved hearing that. I should have let Tony chop your head off a year ago. This, of course, was because of what happened with Tracy. Okay, cut to Johnny Sack and Carmine. I want you to sanction the hit on Ralph Cifarello. Oh! What happened to that little heart of heart with Tony at the job site a few scenes ago? Tremendous moxie rearing its head. The ghost of Richie. By the way, note this new venue in the show. We've seen it a couple of times, but now it's a thing. Take note. The actual spot was also filmed on Mulberry Street, but we're supposed to be in Brooklyn. This is basically home base, social club, whatever you want to call it, for the Lupertazzi family. Johnny Sack asks, Is is it all just about money? In the last episode, Christopher, we discussed the notion that all this posturing and ethnic group upheaval paled in comparison to the almighty dollar. Here, Johnny Sack echoes that, and Terrence Winter did as well. Carmine knows Ralph is a big earner, and he's not going to let that flow of funds stop flowing. So Johnny acquiesces, at least for the moment, and demands a sit-down, which made me wonder... What's the point of having a sit-down with Ralph if he wants him dead? I followed that thought to its logical conclusion. Was there ever a scenario that existed where a sit-down 
would be asked for as a mechanism for a hit. Sit-downs, we know, are to settle scores or beefs. But Johnny Sack doesn't want to settle this, so his ask always made me wonder if he had an ulterior motive. And I kind of feel like what we know of Carmine at this point, how much of an old-school boss he's been, at least in the scenes leading up to this, that he, and in the scenes that we'll see him in momentarily, that he would be, he would be on to that. He would be able to smell that from a mile away. Cut to Meadow's apartment. Kind of looks like a church from the exterior. Tony visits, wearing a trench coat, bearing gifts. This time it's Krispy Kremes. Shout out to Crunch Fitness on Meadow's Wall. If you've lived in New York for any amount of time, you have at one point been a member or had a trial membership at Crunch Fitness. Also on Meadow's Wall, a poster of No Doubt's Return of Saturn. Great album. There's a song on it called Simple Kind of Life. Still makes its way onto my rotation every now and then. Also a great music video. The song title and lyrics, though, are in lockstep with the regularness of life. She tells Tony she's volunteering at Legal Aid, and Tony's lamenting that she's not pursuing medicine. A friend of mine, David, just reminded me of this line. Sometimes opportunities come disguised as problems. Here, Meadow getting into law could benefit Tony down the road, especially if it's criminal defense work. This sequence to me is so simple and subtle, you know, to many it could be dismissed as throwaway, but I see it as world building, subtle world building, uh, placeholders, putting stuff on the table that they can, that the writers can either come back to in the future or not. But basically this notion of optionality, the more options, optionality is a good thing. And the more options we have down the road, the more places we can go and the less boxed in we are. Okay, so Tony's complaining about the ethnic woman Meadow was talking to when he got there. Don't be a sucker, okay? A lot of these people, these indigenous types, they got plenty of money to smoke crack and gamble and all that shit. You ought to know. Oh, I see. That's what this is, huh? You're working with minorities now to get back at me for being mean to know. Cut. Listen to you. Believe it or not, the world doesn't revolve around you. Tony meant indigent, of course. Product placement note of the day. There's a Mac on Meadow's desk and a Gateway mug on her shelf above. Gateway has reared its head a few times in the show so far, which is kind of nostalgic. Apple, believe it or not, wasn't quite as dominant as it is now. And there actually was computing parody for a good stretch of time in the 2000s. And The Sopranos is a great sort of prism through which to view that. Another little thing I noticed was the lone star on Meadow's shirt, which actually seemed to display brighter after he looked at her when she told him he wasn't the center of the world. The scene ends with Tony diffusing that tension or whatever you want to call it between him and Meadow by taking Meadow to buy something. This is an interesting point that will come back to us when he's at the kitchen table with Carmela later. This notion of it's all about money. Money is a band-aid for everything, at least with respect to Tony Soprano. Cut to Elliot creeping up on Tony in the parking garage. We're in a parking garage again. We've seen the parking garage before. Employee of the Month, the episode with Dr. Melfi being assaulted. Parking garages is another venue in the show where when you see it, when you, if you've watched it enough, you immediately think Sopranos. 
great, subtle, deft touch. It's unclear whether he knew it was Tony or not at this point, but he should definitely know of him based on the fact that he's in the news and his patient is seeing a member of the mafia. I always thought it was a little curious that he couldn't make out Tony Soprano, but maybe Elliot wears a really good poker face or maybe Elliot was just completely oblivious and in a hurry to see his daughter. Overall, I thought it was a bit of a curious exchange. I expected a little bit more from Elliot, I think is what I'm trying to say. Cut to the amazing John Sacramone frame at the Brooklyn Social Club. The Caravaggio lighting, the Michelangelo-style contrapposto, a wabi-sabi-looking wall. The whole thing is friggin' incredible. The way he handles the ashtray, the way he handles his cigarette, For me, it's always been this whole thing about watching people who are great at what they do, do what they do. That will always be infinitely watchable to me. Doesn't matter what walk of life they come from, what side of the tracks they're on. Watching greatness is always so interesting. We hear a toilet flush, out comes Carmine. This is the ultimate stacking of the deck for who is running what around here. Also, I gotta say, the way Carmine lights his cig is quite impressive. All with one hand and a single motion. Very Yoda-like. A seasoned boss. He's showing us time and time again, and he's taking his time letting everybody know it. Ralph tries to explain himself. Johnny can't stand it. He hoofs out of there in a heat of passion. Tension's brewing and we get the sense that something bad is going to happen very soon. Cut back to Columbia, contrasting the bad with the good over and over again in the show. We learn why Elliot was there. He's visiting his daughter, Saskia. They're talking about Jason. Elliot is doing a little reconnaissance on his patient, maybe for his patient. Maybe he's going to share this information with Dr. Melfi. We don't know yet. But the main point of this scene, the star of this scene is the water bottle. And as we know, it's his real water bottle. Cut to Carmela consolidating bills? Don't they have people for that? Well, that's your problem right there. Because you equate love with money. You equate love with money. (sighs) They throw that back at each other. The body language after the dialogue, the frame change, there's a shudder to all of it. The way Tony bites into the Entenmann's, both throw money back at each other, but both are somewhat complicit, right? Think of all the gifts Tony has festooned Carmela with over the years, to date. And think of why Carmela's in the marriage at the present juncture. Needs. Material needs. In the name of their kids and family, no doubt, But materiality is the shield that pushes her through this life. Again, the choice to pull back wide after two close-ups, after two tension-wrangling close-ups, the air release of tension, it's fucking genius. Terrence Winter calls it the Citizen Kane breakfast table. So close, but so far apart. Cut to the burner phone sequence. Tremendous sequence. Tony, Sill, Carmine, and Johnny conference call Junior, who's back at home with Bobby. Kudos to Bobby, by the way, for valuing family work balance. He, of course, bails to pick up Sophia. 
Junior's left eating olives. Such a great touch. Somebody in my family's talking out of school and you're not at liberty to say who? It's a logical question, right? Especially since this thing of theirs bends more rules than the Catholic Church. When one or two lives are at stake, it seems appropriate to name names. This isn't equivalent to a journalist protecting a source. This scene always makes me think of The Insider, the film by Michael Mann. Protecting sources and whistleblowing. You know, the truth must come out. And I feel like this was an opportunity for it to come out. But for some reason, which may or may not become clearer in the future, Johnny Sack is sticking to his guns. What's interesting is that Tony even offers to deliver Ralph on a platter if Johnny reveals the source. Tony is playing chess, whereas Johnny Sack is trying to hop, skip, and jump all over the checkers board. Tony's acting objectively, and Johnny Sack is governed by emotion, heat of passion. There's no cracking through that with anybody, most of the time. The thing about the Johnny Sack line, let's play it here. For God's sake, we bend more rules than the Catholic Church. The cut to Junior nodding as he chews around the pit of an olive is classic. If any listeners have any thoughts on why Johnny's so steadfast, hit me up. Let me know. This whole sequence is probably one of the best group sequences in the show, now that I've looked back on it so much and kind of contextualized these scenes and compared them against one another. Carmine says, So read the name of Price and get the fuck over it. So many levels of wow. Again, he firmly establishes who's running who and who's running what. And especially when you compare that to the way that Junior's conducting himself. It's a very interesting contrast, a very stark contrast. Johnny Sack storms out. Junior talking to an empty line is great stuff. This scene was ostensibly about Johnny Sack and Ralph, but Junior stole the show. I didn't say nothing. Carmine calls Tony the next day. This is the plausible deniability scene. They're speaking in code, one of the great dances that takes place in many episodes of the show. Part of me saw this as Carmine warning Tony that Johnny Sack may move on Ralph or someone else on a whim. In addition to, of course, letting him know, you know, do what you gotta do. Cut to Tony with Ralph. I was fucking around. For Christ's sakes. You never made a joke about Ginny Sack. Not like that. Yeah, well, fuck him as highfalutin bullshit. Who does he think he is? So Walter Raleigh? That's enough for you and your stupid fucking remarks. Go back to Miami and play volleyball, whatever the fuck it is you do down there. Or we clean up your fucking mess. Maybe even keep your ass alive. This is another example of Ralph defending past bad behavior and getting angry with people who are disagreeable with his explanation of it. Ralphie is analogizing Johnny Sack to Sir Walter Raleigh, who is an English gentleman famous for the mythology behind El Dorado. Interestingly, he was executed for being part of a plot against a rival. That's a little bit of an oversimplification, but it gives some nice color to the comparison to Johnny Sack. Everything's intentional. Tony implores Ralph to go back to Florida, whether that's to protect him or whether that's to line him up for a hitman, we'll never know. But at a minimum, we know that it's going to drive the story forward. Cut to Junior and Tony. 
at the house. Nice moment. Great Saturday moment. Great Saturday moment with a bro, a friend, an uncle or whatever. Feet up, watching nonsense on the TV and having some kind of conversation. Junior calls Carmine a slippery fuck. Makes a lip reference. The actor that plays Carmine, we know, is Tony Lip. You can see how much fun the writer's having with this. In this case, the writer being Terrence Winter. We also hear about Brainless the Second, who we know is Little Carmine. Suffice to say, Little Carmine's coming soon to a screen near you. Junior says to call on Lou DiMaggio and his crew, the Atwell's Avenue Boys in Rhode Island. There's a nice little explanation of their backstory, but also kind of makes you think in the back of your mind, like, yeah, Junior's talking about a bunch of guys that were really hot in their day, but aren't they just a bunch of old windbags now sitting in a room similar to Junior's watching shows similar to what Junior's watching? So, Silvio and Chris go see about Lou DiMaggio. Main takeaway here was that I thought it was really dangerous to give them a picture of Johnny with Tony in it. What if it led to confusion? Half of the people in the room are legally blind. What if that picture got in the wrong hands? What if that picture made its way someplace it wasn't supposed to be? You know, just a bunch of reasons, enough of which, some, some of which might be paranoid, but he, there's enough there to cut Tony out of the picture, find a different picture, a lot of opportunity to avert a lot of potential crises. A little cool aside, one of the guys in the DiMaggio's crew was in all three Godfather films as Michael Corleone's top hitman. He's the guy who took Fredo out. I knew it was him. Breaks my heart. I knew it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke my heart. The house was a throwback to the Adams family, which is kind of interesting. I tried to find some nexus there and didn't find anything that I liked. Uh, Let me know if you have any thoughts on that. Another observation that I had in this scene is, I love how Christopher's taking it all in. From the moment he walks in, he sticks his head in to kind of casually scout the place before he walks in, a little reconnaissance. But in the show, in general, Christopher's always observing. Generational shifts environmental shifts, populist shifts. This theme will continue. Keep your eyes out for it. Cut to Ginny cutting strawberries. The technique made me cringe a little. But besides that, the show cuts from Chris's intense discomfort with the DiMaggio's to her cutting strawberries that kind of looked, the imagery kind of looked like flesh. Satrials came to mind. I'm threading a thin needle here. I totally get it, but I'm just putting it on the table for you. Satrials, of course, we connect with Christopher all the way back to the pilot with email Kolar. Okay, so we learned that Johnny Sack sanctions a hit on Ralph. Joey Peeps tells him he's in Fort Lauderdale. Let's get it on. Rumble in the jungle. Joey Peeps is on it. Cut to Carm researching pre-existing non-conforming structures in the state of New Jersey so she can visit Furio. With AJ, very tactical. Carmella, unbeknownst to her perhaps, but maybe she does know exactly what she's doing. She's playing chess too. Taking her son there, who's earshot away from everything she's doing, gets her out of any potential boondoggles down the road. Furio, we learn, is clearing his yard to grow grapes for the Falangina, which is a variety of wine grape used for white wines. Carmela and Furio have another moment. This moment was a little bit more tense. 
perhaps for us, the viewers, because AJ's right there. But at this point, we get the sense that Carmelo and Furio are going to let it fly and see what happens. Cut to the Johnny Sack household. Ginny hands him some dry cleaning. He takes off. They have a long stare. This could be the last time that Ginny Sack ever sees Johnny Sack. They made it count. The song that's playing in Johnny Sack's car before he turns around is Sally Go Round the Roses by the Janets. They were a one-hit wonder girl band, and this song came out in 1963. And it played a part in what later became known as the San Francisco Sound. Cutting back to Ralph Poolside. There's a spy watching him. He makes a phone call. Tension is mounting. This is classic Sopranos taking shape. Slow, subtle movements. Advancing and positioning pieces on the chessboard. Followed by sudden, swift movements. Tension cut back to Johnny. We're like pinballs in this game now, right? He finds Ginny with her stash. Johnny Sack thought she was on Atkins. Their moment together is well-executed and meaningful, especially since the actress that played Ginny Sack wasn't even really truly an actor. They really worked through this together well. It was a very convincing scene. It was a very powerful scene. It was a very relatable scene between couples and the secrets they keep from each other and the way they work through them together and grow. I thought it was well done, and I've always liked it. Importantly, Johnny Sack is humanized for us moments before we expect him to be killed. We're sympathetic to him at the 11th hour. This is another common thing. This is a theme. It's certainly common in The Sopranos, but across a lot of media, there's this whole notion of the sympathetic figure. You can think back all the way to Dead Man Walking, the movie with Sean Penn and Susan Sarandon. This is a murderer. This is someone who committed a heinous crime, but for the better part of two hours, we are made to see him as a human whose life should be treated with the same respect despite the sociopathic nature of his acts, actions, and behaviors. It's a device for writers and creators to tug on our heartstrings, but it is important for us to be able to check in with our humanity every once in a while. The Sopranos, of course, asks us to check in slightly more frequently. Cut back to Ralph. His hitman is right there. It is happening. Goodbye, Ralph Cifaretto. Game over. But it's called off. Hitman wants half. Adamant about it. His hard, persistent stare. Equal parts awkward and tense. Why was he so eager? Easy answer is he's a hitman. You got to be a truly pathological individual to sign up for the job of being a hitman. But... The amount of camera time that was spent on him, the stare, the sideways glance, the earring, the the choice of shirt color, Hawaii 5-0, Miami Vice, whatever descriptor you want to give him, he's worthy of a limited spinoff series. I Want Half, starring Stephen Sable. Okay, The Furio Party. Tommy Toon over there, a great Carmella line. Tommy Toon was a Tony Award-winning performer. 
The thing about this scene with the song and the dance that has captured my imagination for so many years, I've always been interested in the choice to overpower the scene with loudness. You know, there's conversation, there's clusters of individuals having many conversations between themselves. Some people are dancing, some people are observing, but the song is overpowering everybody in the room. It's taking up all the oxygen. I liked Terrence Winter's answer. He said it was all about distraction. It's exactly what it is. It's distracting us, it's distracting Tony, it's distracting Meadow, it's distracting everybody and letting, at the same time, it's letting Carmela and Furio be in this open-air fishbowl cocoon, and they have a wonderful moment together. I will say, though, that the weird fade-out to Melfian therapy always threw me. I know it's thrown a lot of people. I've been asked about it. I really don't have a great thought on it. But one thought that comes to mind is the slowdown from fantasy to reality. Kind of like walking out of a movie theater after a matinee. You know, the lights, the brightness of being outside. You're kind of slow to settle. That's what came to mind for me. Okay, Melfi with Elliot. Melfi here looks exceptionally great. And the reason I say that, she always looks great, but she looks exceptionally great here. Elliot is unusually uncomfortable. And it always made me wonder if her attractiveness played into that in this moment. Sometimes I wonder if... Richard had a point. I shouldn't have gone down into that garage that late at night. Powerful stuff. She blames herself for going into the garage that late at night. That resonated for me. If you listen to the last couple of episodes, you have heard me talk about my experience with therapy, my recent experience with therapy. And one of the things I'm working through is that I blame myself for things that don't work out, or I blame myself for things that I have absolutely nothing to do with. This line resonated with me more so now than ever in the past, but it is a very powerful line and is a big issue that a lot of people I've learned have. Elliot mentions his encounter with Tony, though he doesn't know that it's Tony, but he mentions the garage. Melfi's talk of garage triggered his own experience in a garage. Partially it was self-serving, but partially there's an interesting bridge that he's making, right? The notion that garages aren't inherently bad places or inherently dangerous places. I said this earlier, but I'm going to come back to it again. I still can't quite get over the fact that he doesn't know what Tony Soprano looks like. I kind of feel like he should being the erudite that he is. He called him a repairman, which made me think about the bubbles that we all sometimes live in. So what was leading up to the potential killing of two key people in this thing of theirs has now completely diffused. Ever since that moment with Johnny and Ginny in the basement, Johnny Sack comes to see Tony. He decides to accept Ralph's apology. There's no clarity on what changed other than after the conversation with Ginny, he had a change of heart. Being on the floor with her made him realize something that was enough to restore order. We cut to Tony and Carmela in the bedroom. He comes bearing gifts again. Again, another observation that many have made, that Tony's always bearing gifts. This particular gift is a gift from Saks Fifth Avenue. Note the pun a gift from Sachs. Moments earlier, Johnny Sack accepting Ralph's apology was also a gift. The whole crisis was averted, right? To quote Tony in the same room that he's in right now. 
I gotta be honest, the ending of this episode originally left me wanting more in a way few endings do. I know she's thinking about Furio while all this is going down. I understand the sort of multi-relationship dynamic that is unfolding in front of us, but something didn't click. I was surprised to learn it took a very long time to shoot, but putting this all together, I think I found peace and appreciation for it. Two lives were almost lost over a joke. Money issues were looming. Chance encounters that could have ended badly. Lots of moving parts. Lots of opportunities for disaster. But in the end, order is restored. And Tony and Carmela here are engaged in a regularness of life moment. And what satisfied me is that they might be together but they're both someplace else. The great thing, though, is that we're with them, wherever they are, in that moment. I hope I was able to do this episode justice. See you next time. (laughs) 